Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. We are continuing our series of studies on the golden chain, the order of salvation, or the ordo salutis, as it is classically called. And I believe there's still some copies of that uh, visual depiction, that chart there, the order of salvation, if that's helpful to you there in the the back shelf of the room where the uh, friendship pads and some pew Bibles are located. Well, so far in this brief series, we have studied through union with Christ, and then election, and effectual calling, and regeneration, and faith, and repentance. And last time, last Lord's Day evening, we thought about justification. And today we're going to consider the doctrine of adoption. I suspect that adoption is probably the least thought about, and perhaps the least appreciated benefit of redemption in our day. Uh, I know that uh, Dr. Wilborn has been keen to emphasize this doctrine, particularly out of uh, one of his theological heroes, J.L. Gerardo, because in Gerardo's day he emphasized it as well, much for the same reasons we do, because of its great neglect as a doctrine. Out of all the privileges of salvation, out of all the benefits of Christ that we have, and we are so grateful for them, I suspect that adoption is perhaps the most underrepresented. And yet for so many of our forebearers in the faith, the doctrine of adoption, it was not some marginal biblical teaching. It was central. Indeed, some of the Puritans went so far as to say that it was the most precious truth of all, the crown jewel of our salvation, the doctrine of adoption. John Murray called the doctrine of adoption the apex of grace and privilege. J.I. Packer stated, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it may mean that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. The doctrine of adoption, as Packer suggests, it ought to be a controlling idea that influences everything we think and see and do as we live the Christian life and as we live unto his glory. And then there's, there's so much to say on this subject. There have been books written on the doctrine of adoption. There have been entire conferences dedicated to the subject where the speakers have, you know, eight or nine different addresses on the doctrine of adoption. And so to try and contain it to one half-hour sermon is challenging, and we will barely scratch the surface of it. But my hope is that if this doctrine is not precious to you, or if this doctrine is one that's perhaps you're not aware of as much as others, Perhaps this sermon will ignite a fire in your heart. Perhaps it will ignite an interest, a renewed appreciation of the glorious doctrine of adoption. And more than that, that it will drive you to deeper awe and wonder and adoration of God the Lord, Jehovah, whom you and I may call Father. There's dozens of texts to which we could turn which speak to the reality of how God is now our Father by grace through adoption. But for now, let's look to Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. We'll read it, and then we'll ask for God's help and blessing as we study his word. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us today. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, this is your word. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and receive it. May we believe your word and respond in faith to your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. One commentator pointed out that all of our salvation, every facet of it, every aspect of it, is intrinsically Trinitarian. That is, all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one is profoundly and integrally involved in the salvation of God's people. And that's no exception as we turn now to the doctrine of adoption. For Paul, as this commentator pointed out, it's, it's interesting that there's, it's not as if there's one merely one proof text that says Trinity all over it. Have you ever seen what are called photo mosaics? Photo mosaics, it's when they take hundreds, thousands of tiny little pictures and they arrange them so that when you step back, when you you zoom out from the image, what emerges from those hundreds and thousands of minuscule images is another larger picture altogether. I saw one recently and where it had hundreds of faces of enslaved Africans from the 1800s, men and women and children, and they were all arranged to create the face, when you step back, it created the face of Frederick Douglass. Now, at first glance, it just looks like the picture of Frederick Douglass, if you just look at it from a few feet away. When you step in closer, when you peer in and examine, you see there the faces of all kinds of men and women and boys and girls who were part and parcel and beneficiaries, surely, of his greater agenda. Well, something like that, similarly, when we look at a text like Galatians 4, it it may seem at first blush, given those four verses that we just read, it may seem at first blush to be speaking about the doctrine of adoption. But when we zoom in a little closer, we see that, like that photo mosaic, the doctrine and truth and the persons of the Trinity are all over this passage. They are in the warp and woof of the text. And like those minuscule pictures, they coalesce to build and showcase another image, another glorious doctrine. The little pictures, if you will, are the operations of the Holy Trinity. But the larger image that emerges when we step back is the splendid doctrine of adoption. I say all that because as we look through these four verses today, I want us to simply see the work of God the Father and then the work of God the Son and then the work of God the Holy Spirit, the work of our triune God as it pertains to our adoption. So the first thing I want for us to see is the Father and his ordaining or his initiating our adoption. And then we see the Son and his securing our adoption. And then we see the Holy Spirit applying our adoption and the effects that it produces in our hearts and lives. So first, first of all, let's look at the passage and let's see the Father's ordaining our adoption. Now, the word God in Scripture, depending on context, of course, you know, can mean Father, Son, or Spirit. But the way that Paul is employing it here in Galatians 4, I think you'll see it's very clear that he's saying God, he's taking God to mean, namely, God the Father. We say that because God is said, you see here, to be sending his Son in the fullness of time, and then also sending his Spirit in this passage. So if he's sending his Son and he's sending his Spirit, it means then there's only one person in the Trinity left over, the Father. See verse 4? But when the fullness of time had come, God, brackets, Father, sent forth his Son, born of woman, 
And then verse 6. God, again brackets, Father, has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So then, the work of Christ, which secures our salvation, His coming into the world, His life, His death, His resurrection, which is the ground of our righteousness, our, our right standing before a holy God, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the, the source, if you like, of both of those things is the design, is the will, is the initiative of God the Father Almighty. We're reading about this from the Apostle Paul in Galatians, of course, but those of you who know your New Testaments, you'll know that the Apostle John has some absolutely stunning things to say about this as well. Remember the beautiful prologue in John's Gospel? As we were studying it a few nights ago on Wednesday night, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Remember how John writes, To all who did receive him, that is Christ, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the doctrine of adoption. Later on, also from John's pen, 1 John chapter 1, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Now, that verse I just read comes to us from the English Standard Version. Uh, For my part, I much prefer the old King James Version of that verse. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. The the Greek word that stands behind there is not merely see. You you could translate it that way, but quite woodenly, it is behold. And of course, we we tend to think of the word behold. We think of it as just an old-fashioned, archaic, fancy way of saying see, look. And it can be that. But that word in Scripture carries a a certain kind of weight, a a certain intonation and intensity. It's not just behold. It's it's behold, look, with the three, four, five, seven exclamation points at the end attached behind it. It's the kind of word that grabs you by both shoulders and shakes you with excitement and says, can you believe this? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. It's an astounding exclamation from John. It's so wonderful to him. I love how one pastoral commentator put it. He says this, it's not a gentle invitation to see it, but it's a summons to behold something of infinite and exquisite value. John Murray says this is something that the Apostle John could not get over and he never will. Eternity will not exhaust its marvel. He's calling on us to evaluate the Father's love. He's inviting us to attempt, to attempt to try and take it in. To take out your measuring tape, he's saying, and see, see if you can calculate the dimensions of his love. Close quote. J.I. Packer, again, famously, he says, the New Testament gives us two yardsticks for measuring God's love, two, two metrics, if you will, to measure God's love. The first, according to Packer, is the cross. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you measure God's love, as if you could? Well, one way, according to Packer, is by the cross. But there's another yardstick, another metric, another measuring tool by which we could evaluate to measure the Father's love. It's the gift of sonship, according to Packer. That he should take his only son in order to make a wretch, me, his treasure, you, believer. 
Last time, last Lord's Day evening in this series, we considered justification. The, the legal forensic verdict, right, in the courtroom of heaven. This legal forensic judicial verdict, a pronouncement upon you that you are acquitted. You are pardoned. You are forgiven. You are forever in a right and righteous standing before God Almighty in his son, Jesus Christ. And tonight, or excuse me, this morning, we've taken this sweet, glorious redemption. And God in his kindness has managed to transpose it to an even higher key yet. I, I have no metaphor to adequately express the, the, the monumental significance of this, of this doctrine, of this reality. As I, as I tried to think of a way to, to give it a connotation, I suppose, I suppose, for example, we might start in the negative. I suppose for me, the worst thing that you could ever do to me would be to take the life of one of my children. That, that's probably the worst thing you could do. That's probably the worst act that you could commit against me. It, it's, as if you were, it's as if you were driving down the road in our neighborhood. You weren't paying attention. You're texting while driving. And the boys are playing in the front yard, and one of them wanders into the street to get his basketball because it's rolled out of the driveway into the street. And you weren't paying attention. And the next thing you know, he's gone. You've, you've hit the child playing in the street. Through your carelessness and recklessness and your heinous negligence, he is now dead. And so we go to court, and the state presses its charges against you. And I hear the charges as they're read out and then in this bizarre moment, I stand up and I say to the judge, Your Honor, not only do I want you to drop and dismiss all charges against this man, and then I turn to you, the perpetrator of the crime, the horrific act, and I say to you, I now want you to be my son, to be my daughter. Drop all charges. Forgive him all debt. Let nothing judicial be brought against him. Clear his record. And not only that, but I want you to come live with me. You are now my son. All that I have is yours. All my riches, all my benefits, all the benefits that come from being a member of my household, the inheritance, the family traditions, the holiday gatherings, everything, it's all yours. You're in my will. You'll have everything that I have. I love you, and I'll take care of you until the end of my days, and I will set my love and affection upon you forever. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended? Twas I, Lord Jesus, I, it was denied thee. I crucified thee, as the old chorale says. And the Father says, come, you who bear the responsibility, the sin and the guilt that made the slaying of my son necessary, come, come ye into my household now and forevermore. The great Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel put it this way, from being a child of the devil to becoming a child of God, from being a child of wrath to becoming the object of God's favor, from a child of condemnation to becoming an heir of all the promises and a possessor of all blessings, and to be exalted from the greatest misery to the highest felicity, this is something which exceeds all comprehension and all adoration. Close quote. And there, by way of application, as we get from the pen of Abrakel, there is the so what. What is the doctrine of adoption for? What should it do to you? It should make you adore the God who has loved you. And that he should make you his heir and give you the family name and the family nature 
Behold, John says, what matter of love. Look at this. Drink it in, revel in it, pause and gape in jaw-dropping adoration and wonder at it. He has made you and me, we wretched sinners, his beloved child. What manner of love is this? So that's the first thing. The Father's ordaining our adoption. But then secondly, there's the Son's securing our adoption. Christ's accomplishing of it. Look at verses 4 and 5 there in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the Father elects to adopt us. He determines to do it in the holy counsel of his own will, and he ordains and he appoints means of our adoption. How's he going to do it? And the means through which he accomplishes this adoption is the cross. Verse 4, he is born of woman. You see, Paul's deliberately invoking the language of Genesis 3 as he's saying that. He's not just saying merely that Jesus is a human. That's true, and and he is saying that, but he's not saying merely that. He's saying more than that. Paul is informing his readers he's the seed of the woman who would crush and bruise the head of the serpent. Way back in Genesis 3, that Moses clued you in on. This is the one. The one for whom all Israel, for whom all time, creation itself, has been waiting. Right? When, you're, when you're reading through your Old Testament, if you, can, if you can put yourself into the sensibilities of Old Covenant Israel, of, of the Old Testament people, and, and you can, if you can somehow get yourself mentally into their shoes and with their expectations, every time there's this new leader that pops up in the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, a new king, a new covenant mediator, you, you get this sense from the scripture as if the narrator is waiting with bated breath. Is this the one? Is this the one who will crush the serpent's head? Who will, the, who will crush the curse? Who will provide deliverance of God's sin-stricken people? Is it, is it Jacob? No. Oh, is it Moses? No. Is, is it David? Elijah? Elisha? No, no, no. Finally, here he is. The seed, the descendant of the woman of that godly lineage has finally come to do battle against that old serpent, the ancient enemy. And Christ's foes lie crushed beneath his feet. Finally, that seed has come, born of woman. But he is, he is a man born of woman. That is, he shares our nature. God, the eternal Son, and also flesh. He is very God of very God, as we confess in the Nicene Creed. And yet, at the same time, he is truly man, flesh and blood. It is... It is a mind-boggling thing to realize that in order to secure our adoption as sons, we who are by nature alienated from God, that God the Son unites himself with our natures, with our humanity. And more than that, that he's born under the law. Get this, he's born under the law, the very law which he decreed. The divine lawgiver then subjects himself to the very parameters of his own legal code and his own demands. He obeys all the restrictions and all the sanctions, even to the point of dying under the curse of the very law which he created for us and for our salvation, for our adoption as sons. Paul, you see, is saying to us that there there was no other way. There was no other way to manipulate the system. We needed a substitute. We needed a man to live the life and do the obedience that we should have but never could. 
We needed a man to be perfect on our behalf, but we also needed one to bear the penalty in our place. Infinite punishment was due for sin that is infinitely offensive against an infinitely holy God. Can you bear infinite punishment? No, you can't. Neither can I. Who can bear infinite wrath except one who is infinite himself? There could only be one. The Lord Jesus Christ. Adoption into God's family comes at an unimaginable cost. How precious a thing. How precious a thing. Our status as a child of God that he would give his firstborn, his only begotten son, to make you his. So that's the second thing. First, the father ordaining our adoption, and then the son securing our adoption. And then thirdly and finally, the Holy Spirit applying our adoption. Look with me at verse 6. And because you are sons, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of benefits of our adoption that we could catalog and rehearse, and maybe we will on some other occasion. But one in particular that Paul highlights here is that because we've been adopted, we have the right to assurance that we are indeed the children of God. An assurance that you rightly and permanently have the affection and love and privileges and protection of being a child of Almighty God. But not everyone does have that sense of assurance, do they? Analogies always break down, but especially when we're trying to approximate the relation that we enjoy with God and compare that to human relations. But, But nonetheless, adoption is one of those that we can understand. Some of you in our congregation have adopted children, and you've adopted them and brought them into your own family. You understand this keenly. In our, in our previous congregation, the senior pastor and his family, at the height of COVID, they began to care for a foster child, Isabella. Uh, nearly, nearly two years later, she was legally adopted by them. But since she was barely a week old, three days, I think, fresh from the hospital, three days old, she had been in their household loved by them, cared for them, or cared for by them, fed by them, clothed by them. They're the only family that she's ever known. And surely with them she feels safe. And yet there was a time prior to that legal court hearing taking place, where that legal adoption took place, where there was a legal possibility that she might not be adopted by them. The, the, mother, the birth mother there for a time was, was unsure if she wanted to give up her parental rights. And so there was the possibility, a distinct possibility, that she somehow, someday, might be taken away and placed with somebody else. There was this bubbling, subconscious, and yet constant level of fear and insecurity that was hovering around the family. And I suspect that for many Christians, psychologically, you might feel very similarly before God. That is, intellectually, doctrinally, theologically, you know, you know that nothing can undo your salvation, your, your relation, your standing before God. Right? You know that salvation is a thing of God's grace, his sovereign grace. You can cite the Bible chapter and verse to prove the argument and prove the doctrine. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, John six thirty seven. You could cite ones likewise. And yet there are surely some in our congregation, as there are in every Christian congregation, because you've only, some of you, experienced significant earthly relationships with strings attached. Love is a manipulation tool. Love is withheld 
when the other person doesn't get their way or if they're disappointed with you. Right? Love is not unconditional in these arrangements. It's very conditional based on your performance. And sometimes you've even experienced abuse at the hands of the one who should have been the most loving and protective over you. There is no security in such a relationship, and, there, and the affection from the other person, such as it is, can be stripped away at a whim. And so because of this, some of you have the hardest time resting in the truth that as adopted children, our Father loves us with a love that can never, never, never be shaken. The Apostle Paul here wants us to see that God the Father has determined to have you for his child from eternity such that he chose you when there was no loveliness in you whatsoever. And then he sent his only begotten son to die for you, to make you his. And now he has ensured that your fellowship with him in his family will be permanent, impossible to be sundered. And he wills you, he wills you to know and apprehend and comprehend that as well. You see, God wants you to know this truth, Christian. It's not just for the special few to have that sense of assurance. He wants his children to have that. And he does so by sending the Spirit of Christ. Did you see that here? In verses 6 and 7, he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the Spirit of adoption into your heart to dwell there forever. And there he dwells constantly, calling out his testimony to you. See, the truth and the reality of your adoption is that God is applying to your heart and mind so that you will more believe and better believe and more understand and better understand what it means that God is Abba Father to you. That's part of what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is as he dwells within your hearts, that you would better know this, that you would more clearly apprehend the reality that nothing, nothing, nothing in all creation is able to separate you from his love. The Spirit applies your adoption He applies it to your consciousness and your understanding, to your heart and mind, so that you understand all that is yours when you are legally transferred into the family of God, no longer an orphan, but brought into his family living room, forever his. We've gone from the courtroom in the legal forensic declaration of justification and righteousness. We've gone from the courtroom to the very living room of God, you see? Our Westminster Larger Catechism puts it like this. Question 74, Larger Catechism, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of the free grace of God and in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the Son of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Do you remember union with Christ? That great overarching doctrine which is the context for all the other benefits in which we receive our salvation or all the other benefits we receive in salvation? See how that union with Christ informs adoption. You see, because you are united to Christ, believer, all that is Christ's is yours. Because he is the son, you are also a son. He's the only begotten son, yes, but you are the adopted son. The family rights are yours as well, brothers and sisters. What he, the Lord Jesus, elder brother Jesus, has inherited, you will inherit. What is true of him is true of you. He is the elder brother. And because he has been vindicated from sin in his glorious resurrection, you are vindicated from sin. Because he has risen, you too shall rise. Because the Father forever delights in the Son and sets his pleasure and affection upon him, so too does your Father 
find such pleasure and affection for you forever. Christ is your elder brother. You're in the family. You will live with him. You will reign with him. You will inherit the kingdom of God. You get God himself to glorify and enjoy forever. He is yours and you, believer in Jesus, are his. You know, people will often make appointments to come see me and they'll talk about various things, uh, whether it's in person or whether it's on Zoom or whether it's uh, over, over the phone. It, it's, it's what we do. Right? It's a polite Western society custom. That's what we do. We, we schedule a time to meet. You make an appointment with your, your dentist. You make an appointment with your doctor. You make an appointment with your friends in the church. Hey, can I meet you? Can I, can I swing by the office at 1 o'clock on Wednesday? Sure, sure. Let's, let's make that. Let's put them on the calendar. Make it happen. But you know, my two boys never need an appointment. The door's always open. They have complete access. I'm always available. And they can burst into the office anytime and I will be ready and glad to hear them and take them on my knee. The boys know that too. Often they burst on in at 3 o'clock on Wednesday afternoons getting ready for co-op and then supper and Wednesday night afterwards. They come in. It's always my delight to receive them. It's never a bother. Always a joy. They need no such scheduled precursor. And that is the context in which you now live, believer in Jesus. The Spirit of Christ dwells in your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, saying to you, you have full access as a child. The one who reigns on heaven's throne, he will never let you go. And you're the child of the King. Now, and for all eternity, praise God for the doctrine of adoption and bless God for the ministry of of his word to us today. Would you all pray with me, please? Lord our God, we do bless you that you are to us, Abba, Father, and that you are always and forever to us, Abba, Father, and Savior and God. Oh, may we revel in this stunning gospel reality both this day and forevermore. And all for Jesus' sake, amen.